0: You're listening to Episode 72 of Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. The studio system used a brand of typecasting that was often a mystery to the contract players it governed. A taxonomy of types for stars transcended their looks into the characters that they played, It went beyond, you're the ideal wife, as they said to Myrna Loy, or you're the ideal heavy, as they told Laird Krieger, or you're the ideal dance partner, as they said to Ginger Rogers. Beyond character types, there was also a brand or pigeonhole that delineated investment from the front office. From her perspective, Yvonne DiCarlo knew the studio had typecast her in the sand and sandals pictures, dressed in a variety of harem outfits, whether she played a princess or a concubine. Yvonne was ambitious and hoped to break out of those roles and prove herself as a dramatic actress. When news circulated in Universal Studio that Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon's script A Double Life was on the production schedule, Yvonne lobbied for a part as the waitress in the story that hinges on Shakespeare's Othello. A man from the front office met with her and put it plainly. He told her, There is something about this business you should understand, Yvonne. You are something we consider as rock candy. It sells and sells. Now, there are dipped chocolates, too, but they don't sell in great quantity. We want to make sure you keep on selling for a long, long time. Do you understand? When Yvonne left his office, she didn't understand. She was confused. She liked dipped chocolates. She hated raw candy. And she didn't feel like either. She felt like chopped liver. Crisscross Cross, from 1949, is a standout among Yvonne's work under contract with Universal. Her role is far removed from rock candy. She's not even dipped chocolate. If I'm going to stick with the sweets metaphor that the Universal executive laid out for her, I'm going to go with full ice cream sundae. There are layers and layers of good stuff here from Yvonne on screen. In a 1975 interview looking back at her career, Yvonne cited Criss Cross as the first time she was a real actress. She noted three personal firsts on film as well. Criss Cross was the first time she smoked on screen, the first time she cried on screen, and the first time she died on screen. It makes you wish she had escaped the period pictures more often during her roles in Universal. It's such a treat to see her in contemporary fashions using a sassmouth patter. Her character Anna is one of the most sympathetic dames in the noir canon. Producer Mark Hellinger had cast her for a small role in Brute Force in 1947, and before he died tragically, he promised the role of Anna in Crisscross to Yvonne. The studio had intended to ignore Hellinger's choice and wavered between casting Ava Gardner or Shelley Winters. But the director, Robert Siadmak, held out he argued with the front office that the role belonged to Yvonne. It doesn't surprise me that the general consensus from men who write about film noir is that DiCarlo is just another schemer, a greedy dame out to ruin the men in her path. You've read it a million times, but if you adopt a sass-mouth critical lens, there's much more going on in Carlo's performance. Yvonne plays Anna, a shop girl, who was married to Bert Lancaster for seven months. After they broke up, he left town for two years, traveling around the U.S. in different odd jobs. Then, all of a sudden, he returns home to his mother's house in the Bunker Hill section of Los Angeles. In the opening scene, we catch Yvonne's Anna in a lover's pact with Burt Lancaster, who plays Steve. She has the standard nightclub, nightclub siren style, a satin cocktail dress with a jewel brooch, a white ermine wrap. She swears that everything will be different after it's over. It'll be just the two of them, and she promises to make him forget. And we believe her. So does he. The opening scene is textbook film noir. Barbara Stanwyck's Phyllis Dietrichson, as she pledged straight down the line to Fred McMurray's Walter Neff, lingers in the background here. I'd like to suggest that among the ways the film lives up to its title and turns on a crisscross or a double cross is with Yvonne Carlo's character. Initially, she's a boilerplate noir dame in satin and promises, but then something more interesting happens. During a flashback scene, Steve returns to the nightclub for a second time, where he had been a regular with his girlfriend and then wife, Anna. He's looking for her. Lancaster hovers at the edge of the dance floor as though he had a radar tracking device that could sense her presence. The build-up to the moment they meet again does not disappoint. The band plays Brazilian Rhapsody. The song begins with a flute that crests up in the air through the smoke. And when the camera lands on Yvonne as Anna, it's gorgeous. In her first close-up on the dance floor, she rolls her eyes. She looks up at the rafters, not in her partner's eyes. Yvonne is like a hummingbird on the dance floor, light, quick, flitting movement. There's no dialogue, but it tells us everything about what she's been doing since Steve went away, biding her time with boys who don't measure up. She is bored, restless, and a bundle of raw, unfulfilled desire. The band's music is hot and sultry, matching Anna's mood. Her dance partner is baby-faced Tony Curtis in his film debut. Tony is very pretty, but he looks like a boy. And Anna needs a man. I don't think I've ever been more convinced by Burt Lancaster than in the way he watches his ex-wife move around the dance floor. He aches and longs for her. You can almost see a lump in his throat. Burt's face is a study of longing. I can hear his thoughts. I can hear him call himself a mug for running out on her and calling it quits. And a woman who makes a tough guy look so vulnerable must be worth fighting for. When she catches sight of Bert Lancaster, Yvonne snaps out of listless detachment. Suddenly, she's animated. She invites him to stay at her table, even after her re- date returns. Danduria, always a delight, wears a light gray suit with dark stripes. His wardrobe for this picture looks like it came off the Gangsters of 1949 runway collection. As Slim Dundee, he's one of those low talkers whose sartorial menace speaks volumes. Viewers know he's not a man to be brushed off lightly. Costume tells us more about Anna. And it takes a break from the usual femme fatale style. If you remember back to episode 68, when I talked about Lynn Barry in Nocturne, she had reported in an interview that male producers would say, put her in anything, put her in a gray suit and be done with it. But when she worked with Joan Harrison in Nocturne, it was different. Harrison was there for every pin they put in her costumes Robert Siodmak may not have supervised every pin, but he paid close attention to Ivan de Carlo's wardrobe for crisscross. Cross. Mac was known for wearing a long blue duster coat on set. On the back of his coat, he had chalked out the phonetic pronunciation of the three syllables in his name with dash marks: Siodmak. The director sends a message with DiCarlo's wardrobe like he was making a woman's picture rather than a gangster's picture. As they shot the drugstore scene, Siodmak halted production. Something wasn't right. Something was off. Yvonne DiCarlo had worn a dress during the initial takes. Siodmak decided the dress she wore was the problem. It was all wrong and he sent Yvonne off to wardrobe for a change. The director asked for something different. Yvonne returned to the set wearing a button-down white blouse, pleated wool trousers, and flat, strappy sandals. Her hair is swept up. It's not falling across one eye in a bid for mystery or seduction. Anna looks freshly scrubbed with little to no makeup. She's an innocent. She has none of the usual gear to hide behind that the Noir dames have. She could pass for 19 years old. The change of clothing totally shakes up the scene and what it means for us. Yvonne's wardrobe change disrupts the femme fatale tone that had enveloped Anna in the earlier scenes. Nothing about her appearance suggests calculation. She's not looking to vamp Steve or drive him wild with desire. At the drugstore soda fountain counter, scooping up ice cream into her mouth, she's a shop girl who has her feet in strappy sandals firmly on the ground. Bert Lancaster sits down next to her, wearing a sweatshirt and chinos. He's equally pared down from the fashions we've seen him in, such as the belted jacket with herringbone panels that show off his perfect T-figure of broad shoulders and narrow waist. He looks like he just finished playing a game of softball. Steve makes a crack about how if she keeps eating that junk, she'll be fat. Anna laughs, delighted with how much he sounds like the Steve she fell for. She says it's just like old times with him bawling her out. Their banter is playful and sexy. These two kids are in love, even if they couldn't make it work the first time. Anna is not a two-faced deceiver or a spider woman. She made the first move, telling him she wants him back. She's the one who rang him. Before they leave the drugstore, she steps on a scale, deposits a coin, and weighs herself in front of him. Reading her weight on the scale, she's mindful of Steve's comment, but also of the consequences of pleasure. She enjoyed the ice cream, but she also knows you have to pay for it, too. The stereotypical femme uh, femme fatale noir character lives only in the moment. Do noir dames eat anything else but ice cubes from a highball? Never in a million years would a typical femme fatale step on a scale to admit she might be worried about her weight. Anna and Steve continue to date for a while. It's drinks, dancing, the movies. They're back together and it's like old times. Then suddenly, Steve is gutted to learn that Anna went to Yuma. In other words, she got married. When they meet again after a few months, the, ste- the scene starts in a typical noir fashion, but crisscrosses into woman's picture territory. A little afternoon adultery and drinks leads to the expected name-calling. Steve accuses Anna of being a tramp, of marrying Slim Dundee for the money. Steve says, Tramp, cheap little no-good tramp. Hard-boiled Anna replies, stick around, you make it all so nice and sad. Anna fills him in on all the trouble she's had. Slim hasn't left her alone for one minute ever since Steve left town. She turns around, removes the white bolero jacket that matches her smart frock, and shows Steve the mass of bruises splayed across her back. Look what he does to me, she tells him. Anna looks like a piece of bruised fruit. Anna did not marry Slim for his money. She married him for protection. Steve's friend, police detective Pete Ramirez, made it his mission to terrify her. Ramirez, played by Stephen McNally, told Anna to leave town. He sent two plainclothes cops over to drag her down to the station. If she didn't do as he ordered and leave town, he would run her into the station every time he saw her. Ramirez went even further. He promised to frame Anna and make sure she was sent away to Tehachapi to Women's Prison. When she considers what that means and the possibility, she unravels. My hair cut short, wearing striped cotton, digging potatoes, and working in the factories. Getting beaten up by a ruthless gangster is better than going to a workhouse behind bars. Anna is the victim of domestic abuse, and she's terrorized by the police. She's hated by Steve's family. Detective Ramirez was not alone in gunning to put Anna behind bars. He got the idea from Steve's mother, goading him into it. At one point, his mother says, in some ways, she knows more than Einstein. Steve's hatchet-faced mother is a twisted-up harpy. She never gives a reason for why she wants to to destroy Anna. It's enough that she wants Anna out of the way so she can have Steve to herself. Anna isn't playing games with Steve. She's trapped in a corner because of him. Had he never returned, she would be a board shop girl dancing with boys at the weekend, rather than fighting for her life. Additional wardrobe choices seem more of a piece with a woman's picture than the noir playbook. In an off-the-shoulder print dress, Yvonne wears a bright ice cream wrapper sundress with white fondant piping. She has sunlight written all over her, when other noir dames are dressed for a cold midnight moon. While men plan the heist, Yvonne asks Slim if she couldn't just go to the movies. She has no interest in listening to the men talk. Think about noir dames such as Marie Windsor, Jane Greer, or Audrey Totter. They would love to be there, at the table, poring over the map, planning the heist and running the show. But Anna, she files her nails bored out of her mind, ignoring the tough guys. Crisscross blends different story elements, the gangster heist picture, a woman's picture about star-crossed lovers, suspense, and post-war anxieties about masculinity. There's this great bit about husbands as bean counters that I would place in a canon of woman's pictures. The men count money at the armored car truck that's ready for San Raffaello while they bitch about supermarket prices and the difference in price between two cans of tomato juice. At one store, it's 19 cents and in another, 25 cents for the two. A husband complains about his wife who just doesn't get that it all adds up. Since Robert Ciadmack Contributed to the story development for Daniel Fuchs' screenplay, it made me think of the story Siadmak told about his grandmother's potato salad. Everyone in the Siadmak family agreed that his grandmother made the best potato salad. When she was on her deathbed, they worried that the recipe might be lost. One member of the family was sent in to get the secret. Siadmak's grandmother finally confided, I never made enough. That was all the secret. Siadmak captures his grandmother's secret for leaving your audience hungry for more. He upsets generotypes for a hybrid that's more satisfying than your standard meat and potatoes noir. Siadmak took Mark Hellinger's original plan for a picture about a racetrack heist and made it something more than just a macho paint-by-numbers. He gives us a sass-mouthed dame who is true blue until she can no longer afford to be so. Yvonne had worked with Burt Lancaster two years earlier in 1947 when she had that supporting role in Brute Force. They had a one-night stand that sounds like it was a scene straight out of a woman's picture. Producer Mark Hellinger had introduced them on set one day. She recalled, I had no doubt that Bert knew exactly what he wanted, and at that moment, it was me. After a cocktail party and dinner one night, Bert took her home. Yvonne knew what was brewing. There would be no polite goodbye at the door, as she had with Jimmy Stewart. They wouldn't have any privacy inside, since Marie was home. As a backup plan, Yvonne took Bert by the hand and led him into her garden. She took off her mink coat and handed it to him. Bert spread her mink coat on the grass for a blanket next to an oleander bush. Yvonne wrote that they rolled on top of her mink in an embrace that would rival the surf scene Bert had with Deborah Carr in From Here to Eternity. Bert Lancaster's hair is a mass of thick tufts, so lush and natural without any brill cream. His hair is the male libido incarnate, and his shoulders are positively indecent in a sleeveless uh, undershirt. Yvonne launched a promotional tour in Europe for Crisscross Cross with her cousin, Ken. She conducted her press interviews in Paris, speaking French. She was a big hit there and in Antwerp, Brussels, and London. Yvonne de Carla was born Margaret Yvonne Middleton in Vancouver, British Columbia in 1922. She went by the nickname Peggy. She won a poetry contest when she was 11 years old for a verse about a hungry urchin boy of the Depression. She had ambitions to be a writer, but her mother, Marie, wanted Peggy to be a dancer. Each day after school, Marie kept strict rules about dance practice. Marie watched her routines and filled in the gaps with paid lessons from professional instructors when she could afford it. At 15, Yvonne began dancing in Vancouver nightclubs. An early routine was a medley of dance-style impressions. She performed a mix of steps in the style of Ginger Rogers, Ruby Keeler, and Eleanor Powell. She took one of the strangest jobs after she decided to go by her middle name, Yvonne, and take her mother's maiden name to Carlo. A nightclub in Vancouver paid Yvonne $35 a week, a fortune to her at the time, to be a referee in a boxing ring match between a man and a kangaroo. The act had a built-in gag where the marsupial made a snack of her pompadour hairdo during its victory lap. Once they left British Columbia to pursue a career in showbiz for Yvonne in Hollywood, they were forced by limited resources to find work immediately. Marie walked up to a woman at the counter of a diner and said she would like two full blue plate specials. In exchange, Marie would wash dishes. The woman behind the counter agreed and then sat down to talk with the new arrivals. Marie soon had a job waiting tables. A shop on Hollywood Boulevard promised to make your child a star. When Marie saw the sign, she dragged Yvonne inside. Once the salesman learned that they were broken alone in town, he admitted it was a clip joint and pushed them out the door. Marie persuaded the staff and the Fanchon and Marco Theatrical School to accept Yvonne as a student. She worked hard on her dance lessons. One day, Yvonne passed an empty office with a typewriter sitting there unattended. She sat down, thrilled to have the opportunity to write and write on a typewriter to her heart's content. Yvonne went into the zone, that special place where the words flow and the time melts away. When she finished, the building was completely dark and the entrances were locked up for the, for the evening. Yvonne panicked. Eventually, she shimmied out of a window, down a drain pipe, and then jumped. Back at the rooming house digs, Marie was in a frenzy, saying that she had almost rang the police. Marie was not placated by Yvonne's explanation. Instead of relief, she made Yvonne promise to give up writing and devote herself to dancing. Yvonne gave her word. It was a long time before she took up writing again. In 1940, Yvonne won second place and $25 in the Miss Venice Contest, a step along the road to the Miss California Contest. Marie took Yvonne to audition for Earl Carroll's dinner theater for a job in his review. Earl Carroll had one of the biggest names in burlesque. His shows were high-end affairs, on par with Ziegfeld Follies, more so than Minsky's. The stage manager informed the ladies that for the last part of the audition, Yvonne had to go into Mr. Carroll's office and open her blouse. The stage manager explained that they had been fooled in the past, and they had to make sure that Yvonne's breasts were real. The teenager was far too embarrassed to disrobe in front of a strange man. Instead, she moved on to see Niles Thor Granlin, who was known as Granny. Granny began back in vaudeville, was a crony of Texas Guinness in nightclub entertainment, and was a big producer of burlesque shows. In Hollywood, he owned the Florentine Nightclub, which staged dinner theater burlesque shows. He paid Yvonne $40 a week. Burlesque had evolved over the years from still-life tableaus of women posing partially nude, then as a part of vaudeville, to reviews mixed with comics and chorus girls, striptease artists, and then the dinner theater, which made it much less about men with a newspaper over their lap the dinner theater ambiance helped to welcome women into the audience. Granny's shows featured chorus girls and specialty numbers. Granny was always the MC. During each show, there was a popular feature where Granny invited some of the men from the audience to join the girls on stage for a dance. The dancers were told to smile and be polite to the, man, the men, but Yvonne hated the moment when the men, who were often stinking drunk, pawed the girls on stage. Yvonne started out as a chorus girl in the Florentine and worked her way up to her own specialty numbers. One of her most popular numbers had a bit where she danced removing veils and then was chased and carried off stage by a man wearing a gorilla suit posing as King Kong. Yvonne is cagey in her memoir. She never uses the word burlesque or striptease in her memoir when she talks about her years with Granny. But she does make frequent reference to the pasties and g-strings the girls wore. The Florentine wasn't as highbrow as Earl Carroll's theater on Sunset Boulevard, but it was a hot spot among men in the film Colony. Yvonne recalls the famous patrons, who always invited dancers to their table, men such as Errol Flynn and Bruce Cabot, chief among them. Yvonne recalled that she only liked sitting with the men she felt were safe, men such as Francho Tone and Burgess Meredith. Both men were de- gentlemen, she decided. They didn't treat her or the other dancers like a piece of meat. At one party, though, Francho tried to get her to have sex with him. This was at the time when her backstage nickname was Icebox DiCarlo. Yvonne had turned down a string of Hollywood playboys, Francho, Anthony Quinn, and Orson Wells among them. She also ter- turned down notorious Lothario, Artie Shaw. You may be surprised to learn, as I was, that Artie Shaw, at least for once in his life, was not a scoundrel. He didn't sulk or browbeat Yvonne like other men had, whom she rejected. Artie asked Yvonne about her ambitions. When she replied she really wanted to be a singer, he declared that that's what she should do, quit her job dancing at Granny's Club and study and get a movie agent. Artie did more than just give advice. He promised Yvonne that he would pay her wages for a month so she could do it. And he did. Yvonne left Granny's without giving notice. I should note that she remained friends with Granny. They often rode horses together, and she was a frequent guest in his home. In 1957, Granny died in a car accident in Las Vegas. Shortly after he published his memoir, Blondes, Brunettes, and Bullets, Yvonne had Granny's body returned to Hollywood and covered all of his funeral and burial expenses. Yvonne's agent found her work as an extra in a Columbia Studio B picture, Harvard Here I Come, made in 1941. But after the film wrapped, Yvonne's career stalled, In a panic, she went to Earl Carroll's burlesque club for a job. She still had to submit to a breast inspection. In Carroll's office, she unbuttoned her blouse, removed her bra, and let him take a look. She could not afford to be proud. Yvonne felt estranged in Earl Carroll's club, rather than part of a family as she had in Granny's. The girls all coated themselves in white body makeup to look identical, and they formed elaborate pyramids on stage. The house rules at Earl Carroll's stated that the girls needed to gain permission for freelance work or work outside the club. But she ignored her employer's bid to control her career, and she accepted a role, a small role, as a cigarette girl in This Gun for Hire in 1942. Earl Carroll promptly fired Yvonne on the spot when he caught her in studio makeup one night. Briefly, she returned to Granny in the Florentine until her career took off in pictures. When Yvonne signed with Paramount, she made important connections. She fell head over heels for Billy Wilder. He was the first man that Yvonne ever truly loved. Although their romance was short-lived, they remained friends, and Billy helped her career in small but meaningful ways. Wilder arranged for her to be signed with Paul Koner, a powerful agent. He invited her to parties inside an elite circle that included Ernest Lubitsch, Marlena Dietrich, William Wyler, Paulette Goddard, Burgess Meredith, and Otto Preminger. She enjoyed friendship with directors Ernest Lubitsch and Sam Wood. Cecil B. DeMille had declared that her shoulders were too bony to make it as a native girl in Sarong Pictures when the studio tried to use her as a backup for Dorothy L'Amour. While on contract, she had a fling with Ray Milland and Paramount. But Paramount retooled the studio after the war ended. They scaled back production and dropped Yvonne's contract, They told her that the exotic types like she played were now passe. Paramount planned to focus on all American types. Yvonne was relieved to get an offer from Universal, but the first thing they asked was, have you ever played a wolf girl? Yvonne reported for a test to play the wolf girl as a backup for Aquanetta, who herself was a backup for Maria Montez. In wardrobe, they dressed Yvonne in a ragged, tiger-skin costume that reached mid-thigh. They teased her hair into a frizzy cloud and smeared mascara on her face. She did the screen test, recalling that the script stunk up the joint. Luckily, she never heard another word about it. One day, while she waited outside the office of Bob Spears, Universal's casting director, She noticed a distinguished looking man watching her. Yvonne learned that he was Walter Wanger, legendary producer. Yvonne caught a break. Wanger had been looking to cast the lead in a new production. When he learned that Yvonne could sing and dance, he chose her to star in Salome, where she danced in 1945. Produced by Wanger, he began a publicity campaign, campaign which billed Yvonne as the most beautiful girl in the world. Universal began to give Yvonne the star buildup. When they found out that she and Marie were living in a grubby motor court hotel near the studio, they said it didn't fit a star. They found a house for them on Laurel Canyon Drive. Heads shook and fingers wagged when she arrived. For rehearsal, wearing a pair of jeans. Studio publicist expected her to act the role of a star. It was simply unacceptable to do otherwise. Her hair, makeup, and wardrobe should always be done in a style that fit a star. Yvonne was warned never to appear on the lot improperly dressed. Yvonne recalled, I was told, You're going to be a big star. Even if you go to the market, you must dress like a star. It was always Joan Crawford's name that was brought up. Act like Joan Crawford. You would never see Joan Crawford doing something like that, they said. One day during production of Salome, publicists had arranged a photo shoot for her dance rehearsal. She showed up dressed for ladies who lunch, with a smart frock, white gloves, a hat with a net. The front office thought she was a wiseacre and sent her to the wardrobe for a change. Yvonne knew that Salome, where she danced, was her big shot. She did nothing but work, dance, work, and dance. For the ballet number in her first scene, she could not get through rehearsals from the pain at dancing on her toes. The studio physician gave her Novocaine injections into her toes. Yvonne's feet still cracked and bled. After Salome wrapped, there was anything but rest for Yvonne Carlo. The studio sent her to John Roberts Powers Modeling School for star finishing school regimen. She was assigned a glamour cop, a woman who shadowed her relentlessly. The woman began with Yvonne's posture, and especially her walk, she told Ivan, Your mind wants to get to places faster than your body can do it. As a result, your head and neck are always thrust forward, like a turkey in a farmyard. Ivan's so called turkey neck was the first item on a very long list. The glamour cop corrected how Ivan walked, spoke, stood, ate, and drank. During an early shopping test, Yvonne gravitated to all the bright, cheerful colors that she loved. The glamour police stepped in. They left the shop with a black broad-tail coat, a black cocktail dress, imitation pearls, black pumps, and a black pork pie hat. Yvonne felt like an undertaker. At a cocktail party in New York City, she practiced her star entrance. Pause in the entrance with one arm raised and one arm on the door jamb, then pick out someone across the room and call out, darling, and sweep over to them. Yvonne hesitated part way and then went sailing right into a cloakroom. In terms of studio politics, on the surface, Maria Montez was set up to be Yvonne's worst enemy. Yvonne was hired, after all, as a backup to accept the picture, pictures that Montez or Aquanetta rejected, and to be useful by the studio to keep the bigger stars in line. Yvonne was cast in a picture with co-star Jean-Pierre Aumont, who was married to Maria Montez. Yvonne braced herself for a nasty interaction when Maria walked on set one day. But Maria Montez did not resort to any diva catfight theatrics. Instead, the queen of the studio told Yvonne to ask for more love scenes with Jean-Pierre. They should both have more close-ups, Maria noted. Yvonne recalls in her memoir that Maria Montez was among the first to warn her about Howard Hughes. At lunch at the Brown Derby, Maria brought along tough guy producer Pat DiCicco. They told Yvonne about the long list of women in Howard's life. Maria told Yvonne bluntly that when it comes to women, Howard Hughes is a habitual liar. Yvonne did more than her share of sand and sandal pictures and bare midriff outfits or stuff set in the Old West. She was cast next to duds like Rod Cameron and Tony Martin before she moved on to men who could act, such as brawny newcomer Rock Hudson or a reliable swoon merchant Joel McRae or Dan Doria. During production of The Captain's Paradise in 1953, Alec Guinness was impressed with Yvonne's talent and also relieved. relief. He had judged her beauty to be the evidence of a glamour puss without any acting chops when they first met. Cecil B. DeMille cast Yvonne in the role she's probably best remembered for next to Lily Munster, Initially, DeMille planned for Yvonne to wear brown contact lenses to play Sephora, wife to Charlton Heston's Moses, in the Ten Commandments. Then he changed his mind, saying that her eyes were her best feature. She had heard that DeMille had a foot fetish, so she walked in wearing sandals and wiggled her big toe, which probably didn't hurt her to get the part either. Yvonne played a vampire as though she were Donna Reed, but her memoir does not spare the juicy details about her love affairs. She admits that she tried like hell to lose her virginity to Sterling Hayden, who instead called her a kid and warned her against falling for Hollywood playboys. Howard Hughes furnished her home, bought her clothes that he designed, and was a very technical lover. Yvonne explains he had to be good at everything, so he tried to be good at lovemaking although he's more clinical than passionate, and he did have those long toenails. Unlike the Ali Khan, who dished about his exes Rita Hayworth and Jean Tierney between bouts of passionate lovemaking. Each time she became engaged, she felt trapped. Reading Yvonne's memoir, I was so pleased that she escaped marriage from scoundrels such as Howard Duff, She was a bachelor girl for a very long time in Hollywood. Unfortunately, it ended in 1955 when she married stuntman Bob Morgan. They were married from 1955 to 1973, but had very few happy years. Thanks for listening. The following books helped me to write the episode. Yvonne, an autobiography by Yvonne DiCarlo and Doug Warren. Yvonne DiCarlo's interview with James Baden included in You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet interviews with stars from Hollywood's Golden Era by James Baden and Ron Miller. The File on Robert Siadmak in Hollywood, 1941 to 1951, by Joseph Greco. Burt Lancaster and American Life by Kate Buford. In case you're wondering why this episode wasn't about Eva Gabor in Paris Model as promised, I'm still waiting on our memoir, which I ordered ages ago, and seems to be taking forever to arrive. Join me next time for podcast episode 73, when I talk about Carol Lombard and George Raft in Bolero, Sex Fest, from 1934. If you enjoy Sassmouth Dames, why not leave a nice review on iTunes? Thanks very much. Bye!